0: Uh, We're going to continue the study that we have been doing on Wednesday nights uh, over the last couple of months. And that is to look at what we're calling certain fundamental truths. And if you recall, I told you in those previous lessons that there are really three pillars that do provide the platform for everything else that we do. One is the idea that there is a God. And if we can come to argue conclusively that the existence of God makes sense, then everything that follows consequently from that is significant as well. The second thing is the idea that Jesus is the Messiah who is the Son of God. And of course, if he is indeed uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, then what he would have us to do matters. And then the third principle... Uh, that is absolutely essential to Christianity is the concept of the inspiration of Scripture. And so if you can get to the point where you can reason from God to Jesus to Scripture, then you have a platform upon which to stand. Now, as we have looked at those things, the next logical step to proceed from the idea of God to Jesus to Scripture is the idea of the church. And we spent some time looking at ways that we could define what the church is. Uh, That it is a body of believers who are called out uh, from this world to worship God, to serve God. And we talked about the various analogies that are used to describe the church that are found throughout the New Testament. Particularly, it is the house of God. It is the flock of God. It is the family of God, bride of Christ, body of Christ, kingdom of God. All of those various analogies help us to understand different aspects of the church. And with all of that said, as we move on from talking about the nature of the church, that unique thumbprint that makes the church what it is, the DNA of the church, if you will, one of the things that's absolutely vital is to understand the concept of worship and what the church is supposed to do with regard to worship. And there are lots of questions that individuals will have. And so we're going to start with this new material tonight uh, that should take us a few weeks to get through. uh, Just thinking about what the authority of the New Testament gives us to do with regard to worship. What does the New Testament call upon us to do? What did the New Testament call upon the first century Christians to do? How did they worship and how can we worship in a, in a way that honors what Scripture declares? Uh, so those are the sorts of things we're going to be thinking about. Uh, with that said, though, one of the first things that I would point out to you is that when worship occurs in Scripture, corporate worship, if you will, the church is coming together. And we're obviously in a very unique place in the history of humanity. Uh, The pandemic made it necessary for us to be able to uh, live stream. And there are some of you that are watching tonight and we're thankful for you. But I can assure you that 300 people worshiping in various uh, locations, not collectively, but in a variety of places, is not the same thing as the individuals who are coming together to worship. And when you read the New Testament, it becomes very clear that that was a primary reason for the church to gather. They came together to worship. And we're going to make that case from the book of 1 Corinthians. I want you to open your Bibles there. Uh, Because I want you to see just some language that Paul uses consistently through that book. And then in other places uh, as well throughout the text. But just a couple of instances to pay careful attention to. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you might recall at that juncture in the letter, Paul is writing about a problem of immorality that the Corinthians had evidently come to accept and perhaps even to gloat in, if you will. Not that they were necessarily accepting of the sin that was taking place, but it had become such a story amongst everybody else, it was almost as if they were saying, have you heard what's going on here? And That sort of news travels fast from place to place. And Paul writes uh, this about the uh, actions of the church toward the one uh, who was committing adultery. He says in verse 6, rather verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved In the day of the Lord Jesus. Now let's stop for just a second. When Paul says, when you are gathered together, what could he be talking about here? Okay, so the church has to be together collectively. But my question is this, for what purpose? Did they just randomly get together? Or was there a specific purpose behind their gathering together? Now think carefully. In the book of Acts, in Acts 20 and verse 7, remember what the text says about the church at Troas? On the first day of the week when the disciples came together to do what? Break bread, which references what part of worship? Lord's Supper. So why did the Christians in Troas gather together? They gathered together to worship. When Paul says, when you gather together, when you come together, he's not just referring to some business meeting, if you will. He's referring to what the church would do under normal circumstances. The church would collectively come together to worship. And by the way, another an aside, uh, when did the Corinthians hear this letter read to them? When they were gathered together. They didn't have a library where somebody said, you know, I need to check out Paul's letter and I'll take it home and I'll bring it back tomorrow and then you can take it. That's not the way it worked, was it? they would collectively gather for worship and the letter that Paul had written to them would be read before all of the brethren. Okay, So when Paul's talking about gathering together, he's talking about the one thing they understood. That was their assembly. They came together for the purpose of worship. And so uh, you see that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but you see it especially played out a little later on in the letter. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 17, Paul says, In giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Uh, His language here in verses 17 and 18 is very revealing. He's describing a practice that is already commonplace in Corinth. They are coming together. Now the problem was not that they were coming together. They were supposed to do that. The problem was their attitude when they came together. Uh, they weren't unified in their efforts to worship. They weren't unified in the things that were supposed to be uh, done to please God. And as a result, they were detracting from the worship that was coming uh, that was taking place when they came together. okay? I just wanted you to be alerted to those instances of the idea of the church coming together, and to get into your mind what the church does when it comes together. Well, the church worships. If the church does anything, doesn't the church worship? Now, with that said, let me take you on a little journey through First Corinthians for just a moment to have a better idea of what the worship of the first century church might have looked like. okay? So let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll pick up uh, with an emphasis on verse 16. But look back at verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, let's stop for just a moment and let me ask, what is idolatry? It is the worship of idols. Okay? So on the one hand, you have Paul telling the Corinthians what they are not supposed to worship. Do you see that? Flee from idolatry. Do not worship idols. Okay? Keep that very clearly in your mind and then look at what he's telling them to do. Okay, he says, "I speak to you as a wise men. As wise men, judge for yourselves what I say." The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, what's he talking about in verse sixteen? He's talking about the emblems of the Lord's supper. Importantly, he is not introducing this in a command type. Uh, setting where he is telling the Corinthians, this is what you're supposed to do. He is acknowledging the fact that they are already doing this, isn't he? Uh, This was not a new thing to them. They were already uh, observing the Lord's Supper. Okay, So he's drawing a contrast. Remember, he's told them, you don't worship idols. Uh, Stop the idolatry. But you are supposed to worship. So, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So you've got the the cup which represents the blood of Christ. You've got the bread which represents the body of Christ. And he says, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. are not those who eat of that sacrifice partakers of the altar. So, he is drawing another analogy between what happened under the law of Moses. And he asks, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or that what is offered to idols is anything? He's do- he doesn't want to imply that the idol is on the same plane as the death of Christ. Okay. He says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Or are we stronger than he? Now I think importantly, he is introducing this idea of what false worship looks like. This worship of the cup of demons. Idolatry. And he's going to then launch into a very detailed discussion of what true worship looks like. And he does that by referencing something that they were already doing, which is the observation of the Lord's Supper. So that's the first little Hint that we get that Paul is going to talk about true worship versus false worship. Well, what did true worship look like in the first century church? True worship absolutely included the observation of the Lord's Supper. And the cup, which was commemorating the blood of Christ. And the bread, which was commemorating the body of Christ. And it was even referred to by Paul's own language as the Lord's table. Now, were the Corinthians doing that properly? Not all of them. There were problems even with their observation of the Lord's Supper. And Paul is going to go into greater detail about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. And We've already talked about the instructions that he gave them when they come together. And he was rebuking them because their coming together was not a unified coming together. Uh, some of them were more interested in filling their own bellies than they were in uh, making sure that they were remembering Christ. And what he's really getting at there is that their social status became more important to them than Jesus did. And those that had, the wealthy, would come together and they would feast. And those that didn't have, uh, the poor, who probably were working on Sunday and were getting there when they had the opportunity to do so, uh, would find uh, that there's nothing left. And there was a lack of uh, regard for the well-being of brethren uh, throughout the whole process here. So... Um, he, he starts talking about the Lord's Supper. And especially, beginning in verse 23, he reiterates what it's about. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now remember, he has just told them back in First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, that they are to flee from idolatry. And that when an individual is idol-worshipping, that individual is partaking of the cup of demons. Well, we're not supposed to partake of the cup of demons, but we are supposed to partake of the cup of the Lord. And we're supposed to do that till He comes back. So there's a contrast being drawn. But what I want you to notice is that the contrast that we see detailing true worship doesn't end with Paul's discussion of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. As you continue to progress... In the book of 1 Corinthians, you find out that he's going to talk about the other avenues of worship as well. And they are all within this context. Okay, Now, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that chapters 12, 13, and 14 are kind of a package. Uh, Chapter 12 talks about spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 talks about the duration of spiritual gifts. the, The whole chapter on love, if you remember. Uh, love never fails, and whether there are prophecies they will fail, uh, that sort of thing. And then chapter 14 talks about the use of those spiritual gifts. But it is very important to note in the context of chapter 14 that Paul is talking about the use of those spiritual gifts in the worship assembly. So what goes on in the worship assembly? Well, we've already noted that when they come together, one of the things that they're doing in the worship assembly is the observation of the Lord's Supper, right? Well, what else are they doing in the worship assembly? Well, number two in the worship assembly, they're praying. Because look at 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13 and following. He says, Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. By the way, when he's talking about using a tongue, what does he mean by that? It is a foreign language. It's a language that one has never studied. Okay, It would be like me starting to speak Portuguese. Uh, a language which I have never studied. And if you were fluent in Portuguese, you would be able to hear what I said and understand it. And uh, it would draw your attention because you would likewise know that I'd never studied Portuguese. And so that would be a sign uh, that I had the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what tongue speaking was. And that's why in Acts chapter 2, all those nations that had come to Jerusalem were startled when the apostles who were Galilean are standing there speaking in the various languages that they'd never studied. And so it caught their attention very quickly. Well, watch what he goes on to say in verse uh, 15. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. Now, what he's getting at when he's saying, I'll pray with the Spirit and pray with the understanding, he's saying, look, if you have the spiritual gift of tongue speaking, do not pray unless you can also interpret the prayer that you are praying right? Otherwise, what good does it do? Would it help you any? If I said to you, Bereshit bara Elohim uh, va eretz ah va Would you have any clue what I just said? No. But if I said to you, what I just did was quote Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Hebrew. Well, that makes a difference, Right? It, well, it could have been, George. i got to tell you, I'm much more fluent in pig Latin than I am in Hebrew. Uh, with that said, th- that's the whole idea, right? You're interpreting the language that you've just quoted. Okay, So he's telling the church in, in Corinth, look, if you're going to pray with the Spirit, if you're going to pray with these tongues, you better interpret the tongue as well. And by the way, that was a spiritual gift too, right? The interpretation of tongues was another spiritual gift. And if you go on down through 1 Corinthians 14, what he's going to tell them is, Look, if there's nobody there to interpret the tongue that you want to speak in, you be quiet. You don't speak in it just because you can speak in tongues. This isn't about impressing people. It's about impressing the Lord upon people. And so if there's no one there to interpret the tongue, you don't do that. Well... What we're getting to, though, is this. When he says, what's the conclusion? Then I will pray with the Spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. There's an implication there that they did what when they assembled together? They prayed. Okay, So by implication, we have already seen that the Corinthian church, when they came together in the worship assembly, observed the Lord's Supper. And the Corinthian church, when they came together in the worship assembly, prayed. But guess what else they do? This passage goes on to describe the same thing in verse 15 when he says, I will sing with the Spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. So guess what they did in the worship assembly? Paul's telling them, you make sure that you sing with the Spirit and with the understanding. If you start singing in a tongue and nobody can understand what you're singing, what good does that do? But if there is an interpreter and you can sing together and you can encourage one another and you can exhort one another and teach one another, then you are indeed following the plan that God has. The whole point, however, is this. What did the Corinthian church do when they came together? Well, they observed the Lord's Supper. We know that. And they prayed in the assembly. We know that. And they sang in the assembly. We know that. And by the way, we'll get to how we're supposed to sing later on in this study. But I just want you to notice the fact that they did sing. okay. But our text doesn't stop there. If you keep reading in 1 Corinthians, you find out not only did they observe the Lord's Supper and they prayed and they sang, but you also find out that there was preaching that was taking place. Because go to chapter 15. Chapter 15 begins, and Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. Where could they receive Paul's preaching? Well in part it could be before they obeyed the gospel but when he's talking to them collectively as a church, he's certainly talking about them receiving his preaching as he preached to them in the assembly. He says, By which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. When we talk about chapter 15, we almost always emphasize the concept of resurrection. But there is an underlying theme that the resurrection was a subject that Paul preached. And so just as we could say that the text implies that they prayed in the assembly and that the text implies that they sang in the assembly, we can show that the text implies that they preached God's word in the assembly. So you've got these folks. If you're trying to figure out what a first century worship service would have looked like, you have at least these components. The Corinthians came together and they observed the Lord's Supper. And the Corinthians came together and they prayed collectively. And the Corinthians came together and they sang collectively. And the Corinthians came together and they preached God's word together. And if you go on down and you look further about what it says regarding the proclamation of God's word in uh, verses... 10 and 11 Paul says but by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than they all yet not I but the grace of God which was with me therefore whether it is I or they so we preach and so you believe. This preaching of God's grace, this preaching of the resurrection of Christ is vital. And then he says in verse 12 now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Had the message of Jesus been preached to the Corinthians? Yes. And it was part of their gathering together. So when they came together, we know that the Corinthians observed the Lord's Supper and we know that the Corinthians prayed, and we know that the Corinthians sang, and we know that the Corinthians preached God's word, and in addition to that, we know that the Corinthians gave of their means. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. In other words, what Paul has written to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6 equally applies to what the Corinthians are supposed to do as he has directed uh, this letter to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. What are they supposed to do? Well, verse 2. On the first day of the week, what's the implication there? On the first day of the week, what? When you're gathered together. Why does he even mention the first day of the week? Because that is when they came together collectively. okay? It's when they came together to worship. It was the first day of the week. It was a commemoration of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And so they were there to worship. And he says, On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, That there be no collections when I come. What is Paul telling the Corinthians to do? When you're gathered together to worship, as you do. And remember, he is not directing them to gather on the first day of the week. He's simply observing. That's what they already do any more than he was directing them to observe the Lord's Supper. He was acknowledging the fact that they're observing the Lord's Supper. He's acknowledging the fact that they are praying together. He's acknowledging the fact that they sing, acknowledging the fact that Christ is preached, and acknowledging the fact that they should be giving. Okay, So he's telling them, when you come together on the first day of the week, this is what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to worship idols. You're supposed to worship Christ. You're supposed to worship God. You're supposed to worship deity. How do you do that? By remembering the death of Jesus in the appropriate way. By praying with understanding. By singing with understanding. By preaching the resurrected Christ. And by giving as God has prospered you. And he's going to go into greater detail about the motivation behind giving in 2 Corinthians. In the second letter. He's going to write to them about what they should be giving and why they should be giving it. And it's a very important reminder. But why is all of this necessary? Because it provides us with a snapshot of what worship in the first century looked like. If you were here last week when we were talking about the identity of the church, the DNA of the church, some of the questions that I asked at the end of that lesson included, can we worship the way the first century church worshipped? Is it even possible? Is it possible for us when we come together collectively to do the same things they did? And if we do the same things they did, can we be what they were? Well, there are some people who would argue, we don't even know what they did. Well, I think if you look closely at 1 Corinthians, you do know what they did. It becomes very clear that when they came together, they observed the Lord's Supper. Paul is acknowledging that fact. When they came together, they prayed together. And he's he's telling them, you make sure, even if you have spiritual gifts, you make sure that you can pray together collectively with understanding. When they came together, they sang. I'll sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding. When they came together, they preached Jesus, the resurrected Savior. And when they came together, they gave of their means. So our question is, is it possible for us to observe the Lord's Supper today? Yes, yes. Can we pray collectively with understanding? Yes. Can we sing collectively with understanding? Yes. Can we preach the resurrected Jesus and can we give of our means? Well, if we can do those five things, which we find in 1 Corinthians chapters 10-16, through then why aren't we being what the first century church was? That's the whole point. We're trying to be the church that we read about in the New Testament. Jeff? Sure. And that's, that's the whole point, right? So, so can the Lord's Supper be abused? Of course it can. Can prayer be done wrongly? Yes. Now, let me give you a, a little insight on that. And this, I think this is important. At least is something that those of you who lead public prayer should keep in mind. When he is rebuking them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, obviously he has spiritual gifts in mind. But what were they doing with their spiritual gifts? If they didn't have somebody there to interpret, they're showing off, aren't they? So what's he saying? It is wrong in worship to try to draw attention to yourself. Well, that principle still true today, isn't it? It's absolutely wrong for somebody that's trying to draw attention to themselves. Uh, it's, it's sort of like what Jesus said about the Pharisees of his day in Matthew chapter 6. They think they will be heard for their many words. Now, it doesn't mean that we're trying to sit in judgment on somebody who's leading a public prayer. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that each person that leads a public prayer ought to be very clear with himself uh, to make sure that he's not trying to draw attention to himself, but that he's trying to take everybody's individual minds to the throne of God. That's the whole point. Okay, So yes, can the avenues of worship be abused? Of course they can. That's why Paul's telling them, this is exactly what you've done with the the Lord's Supper. You've turned it into something that God never intended for it to be. Uh, This is what you have done with your prayers. This is what you could do with your singing. It's what they could do with their preaching, and it's certainly what they could do with giving. So he is trying in every conceivable way to get them to understand uh, what their responsibility as God's people is actually is. Now, very quickly before we end, I want to introduce the next part of what we're going to get to. Having shown you a snapshot of the worship service in the first century church and arguing that we have the capability of doing the same things that they did, I do think it would be very beneficial for us to get a better idea in our minds of what worship is to begin with. And if we can get clear on what worship is, then perhaps we can improve our worship, which I also think we can do. Uh, I don't believe that worship is easy. I don't think it's easy. As a matter of fact, I think that worship is one of the most difficult things that a person can do for this reason. Worship is one of the very few things that we do that of necessity requires both physical and spiritual focus. There are a lot of things we do physically that we train our muscles to do and you can go through the motions without even thinking about it. Uh, A great example, Tim's a basketball coach. Good free throw shooter has trained that stroke so well that when they're shooting free throws, they're not worried about the pressure, are they, Tim? They're just shooting them. You know? You shoot thousands upon thousands and thousands and thousands of free throws, you get to the point where it's automatic. Same release, same shot, every time. The world record, record holder, I looked this up a few years ago. <laughs> he never missed. He just shot till he got tired of shooting. Okay? And it was like seven or eight hours. And somebody else may have gone back and done better than that again. But here's what I know about that. That guy wasn't sitting there every shot and thinking, I hope I hope this goes in. It's not what he's doing, is he? He's got a method, he's got a stroke, he's not even thinking about it. It's just bang, 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 nothing changes. Okay. When we're just using the physical, you can get to that point, right? Golfers talk about that swing, the memory of their swing, and they get get that swing memory in mind, and that's what they're thinking. About. You know, you don't worry about anything else. You just let your training take over. Okay, worship is not the sort of thing that you can do on autopilot. You can do a lot of things on autopilot. You can't do worship on autopilot. Uh, if if you just go through the motions in worship, you can sing songs, right? You can bow your head and close your eyes when a prayer is being led. You can drink the grape juice and eat of the unleavened bread. You can even act like you're listening when I preach. By the way, sometimes I can tell and sometimes I can't. Um, You can give money. But just because somebody's giving money doesn't mean that they're worshiping when they give that money, does it? There's a worshipful intent that is to accompany all of those things. And what we've got to figure out is how we get to the point where our spiritual focus is joined with our physical actions. And that, incidentally, is exactly what I think Jesus is getting at in John 4 verse 24 when he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay? God is a spiritual being, and when we worship God as a spiritual being, we have to worship Him with our spirit, and we have to worship Him in the proper way. So just because you do the right thing doesn't mean that you're doing it in the right manner. And we're going to talk about that next time. Thank you for joining us.